It's the 30A Show, your beach-happy podcast, brought to you by 30A Cottages and Concierge, with properties in Rosemary Beach, Seacrest, Seagrove, Seaside, and Watercolor, online, 30acottages.com. Here's your host, Corey. It's a well-known fact in my circle of friends that I am infatuated with the idea of Mount Everest. I've watched every documentary, YouTube video, movie about the mountain. It's just fascinating to me, mainly because I get altitude sickness at about 7,000 feet. Today's guest made it to the top, 29,029 feet. She is one of 550 women that have ever reached the summit of Mount Everest, and she's local. She lives here on 30A. Today's exclusive podcast with Mary Morgan Holotic, brought to you by 38cottages.com. Let's find out more about her expedition and how she became the highest 30A fan on earth. Okay, Mary, so tell me, when did you decide that your next mountain you were gonna climb was gonna be Everest? Well, I after Rock and Cogwa, I knew I wanted to do Everest because that is the next tallest mountain. And I had been talking about doing it for a couple of years, but it just, to get the timing right, the money right, and being able to take off, you know, for two months, it just seemed like this was the right time. And if I was ever gonna do it, I needed to just go ahead and do it now. So I didn't really make the final decision to go until January. Wow. And then I left shortly thereafter in April. So not much time for training. So let's talk about that. What kind of training do you do for climbing mountains? So I contacted a guy from Uphill Athlete, and basically he wrote me a program since obviously there's no mountains around here. And I was basically on a treadmill or a stair climber or climbing and running stairs with a anywhere from a 15 to 65 pound pack on. Mm. Uh, then I would do strength training once a week with like a weighted a weight vest on, like air squats and lunges, that kind of thing. And that's it. And you can make it to the top of Everest. <laughs> <laughs> well, sort of. Did you limit the amount of air that you were intake uh, breathing in by any apparatuses, or did you walk around 30A with like a straw? So you. Could- <laughs> no, I didn't do anything like that. We did go skiing so i mean i was in a little altitude but you lose that after a week so Mm -hmm. i don't know if it was really beneficial how do you prepare mentally to climb mount everest because there's so much media out there about it did you watch videos documentaries did you just make phone calls with other people that have climbed um i did all of the above i watched a ton of videos i watched the movie everest which i've seen before but it just kind of had a new meaning knowing that i was actually going to do that then i talked to a guy that had attempted to summit three different times and has yet to make it unfortunately Hmm. I talked to my guide from Aconcagua. He really kind of steered me in the right direction. And then I was able to talk to the guy that was going to be my guide on Everest. And I just, any question that popped in my head, no matter how big or how small, I could text him and he would respond instantly. He was very good at communicating. What about your friends? You're sitting around having a glass of wine or a beach blonde ale and any of them (laughs) just saying, you're crazy, don't do it? Oh yeah, a lot of people said that was crazy. My parents, especially my mom, really didn't want me to go. My sisters were hesitant. A lot of my friends said, that's insane, but we expect it from you. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, of course you get the other comment like, oh, I'm climbing Everest. And people are like, oh, to base camp? I'm like, no, to the summit. (laughs) 
going to the top. My so. Everest around here would be like going to Publix at about two o'clock on a Saturday during season. That would be as much as I can endure. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's probably harder. The harder than Everest. <laughs> That's really funny. It was a nightmare on Everest. Uh, it was well documented in the news. There are a lot of people getting caught in lines near the summit and on the way up. That didn't happen to you as much, did it? No, because we climbed at night and my Sherpa and my guide were aware that everyone basically has the same summit window this year. So everyone's getting the same forecast, which means... Mm-hmm everyone's going up at the same time. So we left at around eight o'clock at night and climbed through the night. So we didn't really hit the lines until we were going down and we hit the ladders, you know, first and second step, people are trying to come up and you're trying to go down and that's where it got a little congested. So you guys also did the North Summit. It's uh, quite different than the South Summit, which might be more glamorized. A lot more videos have been put out because of the the walk up the mountain. You land in Lukla and it's like a, a week and a half, two weeks before you even get to base camp. It's not quite what it is going to the North side, is it? No, we actually drive to base camp, which is <laughs> amazing. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I mean, it was nice because I, I mean, I just, I brought a lot of food, a lot of extra things. People are like, ask the American, she has everything. So, I mean, I brought everything from, I mean, I had the jerky, the Heath bars, Snickers, the macaroni and cheese, the little singles. I, I had everything. And then every kind of like essential oil and medicine and all extra gear so everyone made fun of me for bringing so much until they all needed to use until they wanted it so that walk up from lukla to the south base camp uh which is pretty pretty well uh shown on videos you can go on anywhere on youtube and and see a lot of people do this just recreationally with no intent to climb everest but people that are walking up to actually climb the mountain kind of make fun of those people that they're kind of like zombies. They're just kind of barely walking. It's really hitting them hard. And there's there's hundreds and hundreds yeah. of people doing that. But when you do the north side, these are all dedicated climbers and their intent is to go up. Yes. And they, you can't really get to see Everest from the north side without a permit from the Chinese team. There's a, an incredibly beautiful road that winds up leading to base camp. And you can only go so far if you're a tourist. Pretty much most of the people we ran into are, like you're saying, very dedicated climbers. They're, they're going to do Everest. So we stopped in a couple towns on the way to acclimate because base camp's at 17,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So you can't just show up there. So we stopped in Tingri, Shigatse, and Lhasa. And, you know, you do see other climbers and you more than likely they're probably headed to go up to Everest. Right. Let's, uh, you guys make it to base camp and you're packing and unpacking all your gear. You've got a couple very important people that are at your camp, mainly being your expedition leader. Let's talk about the company you went with and his experience and why you felt comfortable picking this crew. Sure. So I went with Arnold Coster Expeditions and I got his information from my guide from Aconcagua. My guide from Aconcagua has summited more 6,000 meter peaks than anyone else in the world. He was planning on doing Everest this year and ended up doing K2. So he was climbing with Arnold when I was committed to going to Everest. And so Arnold actually had an extra spot on his team. So since he came so highly recommended by someone I knew and trusted, that's who I decided to go with. And like I was saying before, he was so amazing at communication, which really made me feel comfortable about to, you know, trust him to 
get me to the top of Everest. So I think I made an amazing decision. He was great. Um, very helpful. Our Sherpas were amazing. My Sherpa had summited 12 times mm, Everest and then, you know, he's on his way to Montesalu and then he's going to do Abu Dhabi. They, they don't do Everest multiple times a year, but they will do multiple 8,000 meter peaks throughout the year. That's awesome. And you guys have a meeting in base camp, which pretty much is the come to Jesus meeting, the, the law of the land that he lays out for you guys. If you cannot say reach camp two within that 10 hours, you have to start thinking what the problem was. And if you're slow and that's the problem and not some other major thing, I think you really should consider continuing, not continuing to camp three. Because then climbing to camp three is going to be an epic. It's going to take you eight hours. And then you still have to go to summit. It's going to take you 24 hours. And that's unacceptable. So the first cutoff is camp two. If you take too long to camp two, you shouldn't continue to the summit. I will interfere. And also karma will interfere if that happens. <laughs> uh, summit time. Uh, from camp three to the summit, on average, people take about eight hours. I find myself, I find eight to ten hours uh, quite acceptable. Uh, as soon as you pass 12 hours, you can expect serious problems because you're going to run out of oxygen. You're too slow if you take 12 hours and you don't have enough oxygen for that. As soon as you run out of oxygen, the problem is only going to get bigger quickly. Uh, about 50% of the people who uh, take longer than 12 hours, at least they get serious injury, frostbite injury. About 25% of those people actually die. Uh, so the 12-hour time is really important. Uh, of course, if you're on the summit ridge and you see the prayer flags, you continue. Uh, it's, not that, it's not an exact science because that's only 30 minutes more. But uh, usually people who take 12 hours, they're nowhere close to the summit. They're not even on the traverse, you know. There's a problem. That's why it takes so long. Because if there wasn't a problem, you would be there in eight hours, you know. Keep that in mind and be very strict to yourself because people really die. People die easily who cross that time. You cannot sustain on altitude that long. Nobody. Nothing to do with fitness. It's genetically impossible. We're not made for those altitudes. So once you cross the line, it becomes extremely dangerous very fast. Just remember that. Before those 12 hours, nothing to worry about. Enjoy. After those 12 hours, please go down. <laughs> it's pretty real, isn't it? Yeah, it makes it very real. I think the one day before we were, you know, going to do our final summit push or summit run, and we're learning how to use the oxygen mask, that's when I was like, okay, this is actually really happening. We are this is we're going we're finally going this is insane <laughs> yeah anyone back out after that meeting yeah we had uh four italians in my group and one of the italians he was a little older like in his i think he was 62 mm -hmm. and he was wanting to ski down the summit okay. so <laughs> he, he had his nephew with him and after that, when they kind of looked at the snow conditions, they decided they weren't going to attempt summit. They were going to climb to camp two and ski down from there. And I think they ended up skiing down from camp one. 
So that's what they did. <laughs> All right. It's not, it's not enough just to climb Everest anymore. You got to ski or snowboard down. Yeah. There, right? <laughs> yes. And I actually, uh, I met, he was the national geographic man of the year a couple of years ago. Um, Lockbaugh Sherpa. He actually summited and paraglided off the top and then kayaked like 500 miles. Insane. Just not like an anomaly. That is <laughs> not insane. Human. Okay. So yeah. anyone die that was in or around your North side experience this year? Yeah. So there were a couple of deaths on the North side. My tent mate in the high camps when we were sharing tents, she actually was on her way down. She was on one of the ladders about to go down and she saw a man die mm. and you know, you're hooked in. So basically you're still kind of just hanging, you know, by your, by your safety. So, uh, they, they weren't able to move him at the moment. So they just kind of pushed him aside as horrible as it sounds, but, and then keep going. Right. That's, that is, and we're going to touch on that in a little bit about, uh, why that is on the mountain. It, it seems like that is the one thing people ask, uh, because of the extreme of Mount Everest, it, it just happens. And it's, uh, it's sad, but it, it is very expected, right? Yes. You know, you're going to see there, you know, there's bodies up there and you know that the chance of death is definitely there. So, yeah. um, it's definitely surreal when you see that happen though. It's kind of like, Oh, I really wish I hadn't seen that. And then, you know, for me, I just was like praying for their families, praying for myself and everyone with me did a lot of praying. Yep. All right. So (laughs) your leader tells you it's summit push day. You guys are waking up and you're actually going to take one step towards the summit. What was that like? Waking up that morning at camp two, I just did not fully understand what was about to happen. Right. You know, I didn't realize, okay, you need to eat as much as you can because next 37 hours, it's going to be very limited. And I mean, I was trying to eat as much as I could, but it's kind of hard to stomach those freeze-dried eggs at, (laughs) you know, 23 or 25,000 feet, wherever we were. And I do remember actually that morning, Karma coming in and my Sherpa, and he's going through all my bags like, yep. Nope, nope. We're not carrying this. Nope, nope. Because he doesn't carry it all. So he went kind of through all the stuff I had and we eliminated some things. And then he spilt my freeze-dried eggs all over me, my sleeping bag and my down suit. So then I just smelled like eggs. Okay. So camp three yeah. is your final push camp. You're you're climbing for 37 hours round trip from the minute you leave there and make it back down. Yeah, so you leave camp two around, uh, we left there at seven in the morning. We got to camp three around four in the afternoon. We got in a tent at camp three, which camp three is like a scary place to be because you're in such high altitude. So we stayed there, ate what we could in the tent. Then you just gear up and you go. I'm sure some people maybe that waited the early morning took little naps, but we didn't have that luxury. Then now it's like seven o'clock at night and we summit around 6 a.m. And then from summit, we have to get back down to camp one. So pretty wow. much what we did it for like, you know, those four days we're trying to do the summit and get back down and as that, fast as possible, really. That's insane. What we haven't talked about is the weather that you're having to endure during this. How was it? Yeah, so we were really lucky. This weather window, the winds weren't so strong. So it was really cold as usual, like negative 30s, but it, the, the wind was really calm. So up to summit, I was never 
uncomfortably cold that I can remember, but I also might have just been so oxygen deprived I didn't notice. Mm. But coming down, um, once we got back to Camp 3, a storm came in and then it became pretty windy and snowy. From Camp 3 to Camp Camp 3, I did not want to leave. And my sheriff was like, this is not really an option. You ha- We have to go. We have to keep going. So... We got down to camp two and the storm was even getting worse. Really windy, lots of snow, stuff was blowing everywhere. Tents were blowing away. People are like just trying to get into anyone's tent. Like random people were in random tents, like not even from the same company. Wow. So it was pretty crazy. So I I finally found uh, my tent and I was so excited because I knew I had stashed a Coke there and I couldn't (laughs) wait to have the Coke. And it was frozen. So (laughs) that was, uh, that was like so horrible. (laughs) On the South side, there are some areas that you have to walk where it literally is thousands of feet down on both sides and you're almost walking a tightrope. Were there any areas like that on the North summit? Yeah. So it's not as bad as what you have seen in videos of the South side. And really the ladders we do, we go through are are more like climbing and you're going up, not so much across, but we did find a crevasse on the way back from camp two to camp one. I had been up for, you know, like I was saying, like around 36 hours at this point, I could see camp one I'm almost done and everyone's walking over this crevasse and I think I have no idea what I was thinking but I decided I think that I can walk around it Mm. obviously it extends it was just covered in snow so I instantly fell down into this giant hole and I'm attached only to my safety harness I was just kicking my legs and there was nothing underneath Oh. Just, like I'm just like dangling. I didn't have the strength to really push, pull myself up. And then my Sherpa comes and poor Karma, he doesn't have the strength to pull me out. So I'm just dangling there for like a minute. I mean, it felt like eternity. I'm sure it was like one or two minutes. And then another Sherpa comes by and both of them scoop down and kind of just scoop me up. And it was really scary. Really, And I don't know if I knew some, like, I think I knew I was okay, but my body was like, no, actually you should definitely be scared right now. This is scary. Yeah, that's scary. My my heart was racing. I just felt like, oh my God, I'm so scared. I'm going to pee my pants. Oh wait, I think I did just pee my down suit. Like, this is crazy. Give me like, give me in a tent. I want to go to bed. Like, uh, so close. Wow. That's, that's not the first thing you tell your parents when you call them. Yeah. No, my parents actually didn't hear that story until I was telling it at my summit party in Florida. So that made the pit of my stomach fall out listening to you say that <laughs> because you do see the the videos of people crossing on those ladders. And when you look down, it is a long way down and uh, there's just really no way to help anybody if they get down there, right? Yeah. Wow. It's scary. That is scary. Okay. So you made it to the top. You have a view of the summit and this walk to the top has to be just amazing for you. Tell us what it sounded like as you're making that final push to reach the top of Mount Everest. So it's pretty incredible. Karma, my Sherpa, unhooked me from the main rope, the fixed ropes that were fixed this year. And he was kind of dragging me around the people that were ahead of us. And at the moment, I didn't realize what he was doing. I was actually just so tired and like, why are we going faster? All these people are getting breaks. Why can't I? We got around, he reclipped me in. And then I started to see like an open snow field. And Karma told me there's like pointed to the summit. And I realized like, oh my gosh, like there's, I'm going to cry. There's no one else here. Like this is 
incredible. And we walked through this like snowfield and then we got to the top and it was just mean karma. There's like all these, the prayer flags and this little like Buddha statue and karma was like, sit down. And I like sat down. I was just like, oh my God, I'm sitting on top of the world. <laughs> and for about two minutes, um, there was no one there and it was like absolutely incredible. And then, you know, more people started to summit, but to be on the top of Everest in a year where there were so many issues with crowding and people, um, <sighs> it was amazing. Yeah. I took a big deal. Hey, Mama, how are you? How are you? Come here. Okay. Good. Okay. 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 Thank you. Sorry. Now you have to get down. So, smells. Can you remember a smell when you were up there? Is there anything that sticks out? No, there's not. Like, it does. It smells like so clean, you know? Yeah. Like, I. And you have this oxygen mask on, so it's a little breezy. And everything is frozen. Your eye, like I didn't have my goggles on because we climbed at night, and the ones I um, had are tinted, and they kept fogging. So I just had my my eyelashes were all frozen, my um, eyebrows, like the hairs coming out of my hat and you know down suit are all frozen. So I, if there was a smell, it, I probably wouldn't have even been able to smell it, to be honest. <laughs> so, so you were up there. I know you guys were taking photos of some of the things he brought to the top with you. I mean, I'm sure Karma was talking to you as well. But in the moments where there was no noise, what did it sound like? Um, <laughs> it was just like peace, you know, like calming. And then you start to like think about having to get down yeah it's that's like, the next thing isn't it <laughs> <laughs> but while you're up there you got to see the horizon i'm sure the sun's coming up yes. at this point a little bit and all the other little mountains around there which are not very little start oh, to wake up and i can't imagine what that view's like it was absolutely breathtaking gorgeous i wish that i had had the energy and not been scared to take my hands out of my gloves and take more pictures and even use my gopro but in the moment, you're in the moment and you're exhausted and it's cold. So in my mind, it was just so incredible. But it, it it's almost more scary though, because then when I was going down, I could see how exposed we were and the real dangers. It I think, I, and I, you know, you're exhausted. So I think for me, going down was um, more of a challenge than going up. So many people try to document every second of the day, no matter what they're doing, whether eating a hamburger or if they're with friends walking down the street. It's almost <laughs> it's almost kind of cool that you didn't get too many photos up there because that views yours. Exactly. Yes. And it will forever be so special to me. <laughs> and the reason we got together and even know about this is you took a 38 sticker up there with you <laughs> so we thank you for that uh you're you're the highest 38 fan in the world i encourage anybody else that wants to go up there give the sticker bring a sticker yeah bring it and let's 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 make it a new club you need somebody else to talk yeah. to about this so <laughs> i wanted to be the first woman from 38 to ever summit everest yeah well you did it that is crossed off the list uh, your bucket list has been fulfilled yes you uh not only fell down a crevice you had oxygen issues yeah so on our way down we passed my tent mate the, she went up a little later with the russian guide and she was so excited like momo you summited you did it and 
you know, I could see that she was talking to me and she was excited, but I could not respond. I could not get excited. Even though like my heart was excited, I physically like could not muster the strength to get excited or speak to her. And about five minutes later, I just felt like I was like, I'm gonna, I can't keep my eyes open. I, I have like zero energy. Like, like I literally can't keep going. And I told my Sherpa Karma, I was like, something's wrong. This isn't right. And he looked at my oxygen tank and was like, oh, Momo, you have no oxygen. I was like, okay, great. So he sat me down kind of like on a rock, you know, I, I used sitting, you know, I was just leaning against a rock and I don't know how or where he found another oxygen tank, but I think he must have gotten it from another Sherpa who had had an extra one that had been used, mm-hmm. but it still had a little in it. It wasn't completely at zero. So at that point, I started climbing on a lot less oxygen. So I was at like point, I had been climbing at three to four liters and then they switched me down to like 0.5 to one, 1.5, you know, from that point on, I definitely felt incredible. I mean, incredibly weird. Right. A feeling I can't, like, I cannot really explain, but I never, I didn't feel scared. I knew karma. Um, I don't know. I felt like I felt safe. I feel like I was in God's hands and, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to get through this. But, you know, I think people think there's like a, like a surplus of oxygen tanks everywhere and like hidden ones and you can just grab one if you run out. But that is most definitely not the case. We ran out of oxygen again once we finally got down to camp one. So that night, um, I slept with no oxygen mm-hmm. after that, you know, that full summit day. And so that was definitely rough. Um <laughs> And when I did even get back to the three liters I'd been on, I was thinking like, oh, I'm going to feel so much better. But by that point, I was just so exhausted. And you can look at some of the pictures. Like my lips are blue. My fingers are blue. Like It looks like you climbed Mount Everest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It looks like I've been in the death zone because I have. <laughs> yeah, the, we didn't really touch on that. But the death zone is what it is. You're not meant to be up there. And it's basically an evacuation once you finish what you're there to do. Any of your people that were climbing uh, the North Face not make the stages in the correct amount of time and have to come back down? Yes. So um, there was one guide and his client, he was using our logistics. So he was with us in like the dining tents and all that, but he was his own guide. And his um, client made it to the top with her Sherpa, but he did not. And he actually passed us on his way up while we were coming down and asked, you know, my Sherpa, do you think I can make it with what I have? And they said, no. So he turned around and walked back down. And then there was, um, another climber and he was trying to summit without oxygen Mm. and he had been sick prior to even, um, attempting the summit. And he spent a lot longer time up at advanced base camp thinking that the rope fixing team was going to eventually fix the ropes past camp one sooner mm-hmm. than they did. So I think that was really trying on his body. And when he made it to camp two the next morning, when he was trying to put on his boots, he couldn't put his boots on. They were too tight and they finally get him on and he just got out of his tent and collapsed. As you know, that's pretty much the like the highest they can really do rescue. So they had to get a group of Sherpas together and they did like a makeshift kind of sled, like, but you can't really sled from that point. 
you, you really have to be carried because it's so it's more technical climbing once you get that high. Right. So you can't just like slide down. So the Sherpas, you know, I think there was about eight of them. They got him down to camp one. Then from camp one, they can kind of more slide you because it's more, more snow than rock. I mean, you're still climbing. It's really steep, but it's more snow. And then from camp or from advanced base camp down to base camp, they had to actually strap him to a yak and carry him down. Then from, you know, base camp, they can drive you. But on the north side, they can rescue you to a certain point by helicopter, but there are no helicopters allowed on the north side at all. So let's, uh, we'll talk some numbers uh, about Everest here. About six weeks is what it is uh, once you get to base camp to get acclimatized and then make your push. Is that about the duration? Yeah, that's about right. So six weeks, when you get to the top, how long does it take you to get all the way back down? From the top to all the way back down. So you get down to camp one that same summit day. And then the next day, you uh, we got from camp one to... And this is me and my Sherpa. Other people were stuck at camp three or camp two. Not everyone from my group was able to make it down as far as we did on that first push. Right. So some people had to spend the night in um, camp three and some in camp two. And the, the biggest problem with that is there's no food or resources up there at this point. Right. You know, you're supposed to be down to camp one and you, people aren't caring enough to have extra during this time. So Carmen and I did make it back down to camp or advanced base camp the next day after we summited. And from there, we still had to wait for other members of our group before we continued down to so a couple of days on the way yeah, back so down. We were, yeah. So we were still, we stayed like one night at camp one and the, or, you know, after we summited one night there and then two or three nights at ba- advanced base camp. And then once you get to base camp, you don't even really, we stayed two more nights there as well because the Sherpas have to get, start bringing the stuff down. Hmm. You know, you have to wait for your stuff, some of your stuff that's in the high camps. And then, uh, then we drove, Instead of we flew from Kathmandu to Lhasa, but on the way back we drove, and it was the craziest drive I've ever been in. It was definitely just as nerve wracking as climbing Everest because <laughs> the road was not really a road, and you're about to like looks like you're gonna fly off it. People are horrible drivers. It was right. it was insane. It was insane. <laughs> so you're done with Everest, and somebody walks up to you and says, uh, "I think I want to do it." What would you tell them? I'd say I would absolutely go for it, but I would say um, be mentally prepared and I would start with a smaller mountain just so you can kind of have an idea of what you're really getting yourself into. Also, Everest is a lot of waiting. Um, Other mountains I've done, you're pretty much moving constantly. Aconcagua, we did some acclimatization days, but we, we would still climb up and climb down during the, that time, there weren't a lot of rest days. Everest is a lot of waiting. Part of that is due to the weather windows this year because there were no ropes fixed higher than camp one. So there was no point in climbing up there and just sitting at advanced base camp. So we, we did a lot of waiting after, after we were acclimated um, back at base camp. There was actually um, a group of us that even went down to a village called Tashijong and spent a couple days just to break up the monotony of waiting once we realized the weather was so bad they couldn't fix the ropes let me ask you this how many people summited in total uh in 2019 i have no idea (laughs) do you know how many people were lost on the mountain this year 
No. It was it was uh, above 12. above above twelve, I think, right? Yeah, I, I I'm thinking around twelve. Yeah. Five hundred and fifty women have summoned, and you're one of that number. Hard to grasp, I think. <laughs> Well, you're due to have some uh, mountain talks with some youth around here on things you can do in your life. For sure. I mean, preser- perseverance and just believing that you can do it and just do it. Just do it. Just do it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> Calling all Don't sponsors. Talk. <laughs> yeah. Just Don't talk it. about it. Just do it. <laughs> That's right. Well, Mary, thank you for stopping by and talking with us a little bit about this. Uh, it's one of the more unique stories that we've had show up in the 30A world and we look forward to seeing you around town on possibly one of the flattest parts of the earth that you could ever come to. (laughs) Thank you so much, Corey. Shunk Gully on 30A, winner of the 30A Hotspot Award for casual dining and best oysters, shunkgully.com. The 30A Show, your beach happy podcast brought to you by 38 Cottages and Concierge with properties in Rosemary Beach, Seacrest, Seagrove, Seaside, and Watercolor.